The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance in Security on Federal News Radio. How much does the security clearance process and policy matter? We think it matters a lot at clearancejobs.com and that's why we try to let folks know what goes on with the clearance process, what's up with Trusted Workforce 2.0, what's the latest in continuous vetting, because we think the more knowledge the workforce has, the better they're able to do their jobs, and potentially the more people we attract into this workforce. And that's why we are so delighted to partner with amazingly brilliant people like Charlie Sowell. He is the CEO of SEM Solutions LLC. He's served in a variety of roles across government and within the security space. So he really has a great knowledge of this. And he's one of those people that I love to be able to ask questions to and speak with anytime I get to see him out and about somewhere covering the security clearance process just because he knows so much. And again, he's been invested in this process in so many different areas. So thank you so much, Charlie, for taking the time to chat with me today. Lindy, thank you for the opportunity and back at you. It's great to talk with someone like you who knows so much about the process. And thanks for the great work that you and Clearance Jobs are doing and keeping everybody informed on the happenings in this space. I love talking to you because you've worked in so many different roles within this space. So you've been in active duty, you've done government service, private sector, now a company owner. How has your perspective on personnel security changed within all of those different roles? Because I do find you're hitting different tension points. I feel like at this point now you have to be close to having all of them, Charlie, under your belt. What have you learned in some of those different roles and how would you describe kind of the state of personnel security today having been in this space for so long? Lindy, that's kind of funny just hearing it that way, but you're right. I I feel like I've done just about everything except serve as an adjudicator, perhaps in the Office of Hearings and Appeals kind of part of the process. But started off in the cleared space as a young sailor. And back then, uh, clearance was just a tool I needed to get my job done. And then I went into industry and, again, used a clearance not just for myself, but also for the teams that I managed. And then as I left industry and went into government, you know, as a government executive responsible for the entire federal, state, local, tribal, and industrial security clearance enterprise, it really took on a different meaning at that point. You know, the focus was, gosh, how do we keep the nation secure from threats of all different kind of background and countries and topics like terrorism and proliferation? When I left government and went back into industry, you know, the focus and perspective kind of became on how do I help my clients meet their mission and help the company grow, whichever company I was in. And, and now as an owner, security clearance is just one of the multitude of tools and processes I have to have to keep my business going, my clients supported, and you know, make sure my employees have meaningful engagements and are paid. So it really has changed over the years. 
So last year was all about Trusted Workforce 2.0. I know I think I've chatted with you about it a few times, different iterations or things that have been going on, or Trusted Workforce 1.25, depending on how, how we're defining it. I haven't heard as much about it so far this year. Granted, we're only, depending on how you define your quarters, you know, a quarter or half a year in. Is that because we're in a holding pattern as we kind of wait for this implementation? Do you think there's things going on behind the scenes that we're just not hearing about yet? Or what's what would you, how would you put the status of Trusted Workforce 2.0 today? You know, I think the biggest impact has been the change of administrations. When you look at what's happening today, it took almost a year for the Biden administration to issue prioritization guidance on Trusted Workforce 2.0. And frankly, that's relatively fast compared to past administrations. You know, in terms of the, the current state, I think we're in an evolution versus revolution type of, of construct. Because at the end of the day, we're still evaluating trustworthiness of people uh, to hold a clearance and access classified information. How we're doing it seems to be much improved, but the end game is the same. You know, you talk about marching toward trusted workforce 2.0. I certainly think it's ongoing, but the National Background Investigation Services, INBIS, uh, is clearly the linchpin to trusted workforce 2.0 success. A lot is riding on DCSA's successful rollout of INBIS, and I'd love to see a whole of government best of the best support approach to helping Jeff Smith at DCSA and his Embus team uh, as they do their best to accomplish what's nearly an impossible task. Yeah, I mean, the technology piece of it, we've been talking about that for a long time about, you know, DCSA really inherited this giant elephant with their legacy systems from OPM. And I think that that's been harder to update. Government doesn't share its good news very well, but they definitely don't share their bad news very well either. So knowing what's the state of that process or as we wait for it to be implemented, seems like that's going to be a key piece as we move forward is getting that INBIS system up and running. Definitely. You know, I'll applaud the leadership at DCSA and the, the PAC PMO with Matt Eanes and others across government for their increasing transparency. Um, I do think the key to INBIS is engagement, which is very different than briefing different stakeholders on the status of things. Engagement with industry, for example, means getting out there and understanding what Invis's capabilities need to look like from an industry perspective. Just like it needs to, you know, DCSA needs to understand how things look from a government customer perspective. It is difficult to see where things stand, and I think the real measure of progress is what can an individual FSO or what can a a security professional put their hands on and actually use in the system. And I think as we start to see more capabilities roll out, people's confidence will increase. And I loved how you described it earlier, evolution versus revolution, because I think that describes it well. And I think we get pushed back a lot about government not moving fast enough or too far. Even, for instance, ODNI's, you know, policy guidance on drug use. I think that was really important clarity, but you got a lot of pushback from, you know, kind of the drug industry side of it. I would say it was saying like, hey, that does, you know, that doesn't go far enough. We've already seen that borne out. And I was just looking at some of the Doha cases out of DOD, and they were citing the fact that somebody had used drugs, knew it was illegal at the federal level, but was doing it in a state where it was illegal, even though they were willing to give up that drug use, just said like, that's a that's a clear example of them knowingly violating a rule and use that as their argument for denying clearance eligibility. That person can reapply within a year. And I think if they have not done any drugs, their chances would be pretty solid. But it's not a sea change in terms of the policy. Could you even speak to that? Why we wouldn't see a sea change in policy? Why we're kind of seeing more incremental movements, even on things like drug use? 
Yeah, Lindy, that's a great example. You know, marijuana use in particular, as marijuana becomes more legalized across the country, there's this split reaction from the government. It's still illegal federally. So federal agencies that are issuing clearances certainly have to follow federal law. The more that you get candidates and applicants that have used marijuana legally in their state that might never have thought of applying for a federal government position, you got to wonder why we keep dragging our feet on, on more meaningful change. And that's something that, you know, we all joke about. All of us that have spent time in policymaking joke about the speed of policy. Well, it's a snail's pace of policy change, just like you've seen, you followed and reported on drug use changes in federal policy. The other problem with this is agencies are still going to make different suitability and security determinations based on their interpretation of the policy and the law. And so it's really hard to put policy guidance out that isn't super clear and expect the entire federal government to follow it the same way. Oh, you've touched on one of our frequently asked questions is suitability versus security clearance. Can you unpack that a little bit? Just because I do think we have folks that listen in who don't always understand that difference. And we get a ton of questions about that. Why is suitability and security clearance different? And how are they different? Security clearances are typically related to a person's trustworthiness for access to classified information. But there are other jobs in the federal government that don't require a clearance that require a lot of trust. So for example, somebody handling regulatory responsibility for prescription drug issues, you know, as they do investigations or as they do inspections of different drug companies, you could see where if somebody had a drug problem, that might create a conflict of interest and could reduce the public's trust in someone to be able to perform those duties and responsibilities to the best of their ability. Also, working with large sums of money. So if you're responsible for issuing contracts, that doesn't necessarily require a clearance, but it sure does require a level of trust in that person's integrity and capability, that they're not doing favors for friends or embezzling, cutting side deals. So that's, I think, the layman's description of difference between suitability and security. Yeah, that's always helpful just to hear and reiterate because we do get that question a lot. So I recently posted some data about the PAC PMO, which showed a huge drop in the clearance in access population. So that's another nuance. We have the total number of people with clearances, which again, the transparency has gotten wildly improved over the past even you know five years, few years through the PAC PMO and what they release. There's those folks who are in access using their clearance eligibility today and those who have been cleared, their clearance would be maybe current, but you know, they're not out of the system, they're not expired, but they're not in access today. So we saw this drop in the folks who were in access, who are using their security clearances today, which is a nightmare for me, someone who's trying to help, you know, employers find people. You kind of commented on that. A lot of folks commented and said it's a part of the great resignation. They think people are fleeing the cleared industry. I think that has to be borne out over time. But what are your thoughts? Do you think we're experiencing an exodus within national security? And do you think there's any steps maybe that can be taken to help turn the tide the other way? Yeah, first off, that was a great, insightful post and, and article. And thanks for putting that out there. I saw Brian Dunbar's comments about the great resignation, and that really resonated with me. I think there's a lot of fact to that, that people post-pandemic are using this kind of newfound freedom to work from anywhere to vote with their feet and their moving vans. Why sit in expensive, congested population areas when you can now 
dial in from your beach chair and still perform the same type of work. And frankly, the amount of classified work that needed to be done during the pandemic was the same amount of classified work that needed to be done pre-pandemic, but it was being done in very different ways. You know, you had port and starboard type of employee setups in SCIFs because of social distancing. You had people that previously would do a lot of unclassified work in SCIFs, now not just able to, but having to perform that kind of work from home because you couldn't get everybody clustered together in the same space. So I think part of what we're seeing is our cleared workforce saying, you know, a lot of the work I was doing, even when I was in access, wasn't really classified work, and I'd rather do it from someplace else. But one thing that gives me a lot of hope is organizations like yours and other uh, associations like ENSA, whenever we're holding mentoring events or opportunities for young applicants to ask questions, we still see a tremendous response and a tremendous interest. I do think the interest in public service uh, is still there and still strong, which certainly gives me hope. Yeah, I mean, it often comes as like making the right matches across these agencies and finding the right way to get people pivoted into government. And then, you know, certainly improving the government onboarding process would help. But I always still come across young people who are interested in these careers. So sometimes it's a matter of making the right inroads, but it does make me concerned for the middle management piece of it, which I know, unfortunately, the way government contracts are built, there's always a ton of demand for that demographic. And again, those are the people that probably have the most remote work, commercial sector, other opportunities. So how do we attract those folks? Absolutely. And when you've got companies like SpaceX that are doing leading edge, unclassified work, uh, working toward getting people to Mars, for example, there's a, a certain draw of the highly technical population that's getting inspired to work for the commercial sector. That's a great thing. I think that keeps America's technological edge going. It's incredibly important to us for our economy and for our role as a world leader. So talk to me about SEM solutions, Charlie, because you're always doing something cool or interesting. So I have to trust that this is a really cool initiative and company that you're doing here. What kind of work do you do? How do you help companies navigate the security space? What are you up to now? Sure. So I started the company uh, in August last year after coming back from a, a kind of a public service mission down on the southern border where I was the site director for a unaccompanied migrant children site. So it was a real out of career experience doing something I had never done before. And when I came back from that, I really was inspired to continue helping underserved populations. SCNM Solutions was founded to focus on giving opportunities to veterans. Um, I'm a, a veteran, a service-disabled veteran, and uh, I wanted to create other opportunities for my colleagues there. And I also wanted to create opportunities here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I started the office in a low-income area in Harrisburg, and I'm looking to hire folks that may not have had the opportunity to get to Washington, D.C. and get to uh, technical jobs or meaningful careers outside of the Beltway. So that's what I'm focused on now. And I'm also offering services in, in some of the areas that have been my sweet spots for uh, a, a few years, personnel vetting and personnel security, information technology, and then my, my newfound love of refugee support and resettlement issues. 
I think it shows how across a government career, you can really pivot to a lot of different things. And you've had a, a lot of really amazing pivots. And I hope that kind of inspires people who are looking to consider a government career. I think this is the new norm that we're seeing is that you can really serve the government in meaningful, influential ways and do it in a lot of unique ways. And all of them have a real tie to public service. So I know when it comes to attracting young people, I think that's a passion point, right? I mean, we want, we want to give back. We want to help underserved populations. And there are a lot of different ways to do that in and out of government. So thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks a lot for the opportunity, Lindy. And thanks for the great work that you and Clarence Jobs continue to do, not only on this topic, but also across the government spectrum. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I'm attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about home ownership issues and security clearances. You know, Lindy, this has been, I think, something that's been on a lot of people's minds lately, not so much in the security clearance context, but if you own a home, just the value inflation and crazy things that have been happening in the housing market over the past few years. I know that it is certainly still a seller's market here where I am in California. And this is something I sort of joke about with my wife often, you know, she wants to stay, I, I, I say, hey, let's, let's get out while the getting's good. Let's sell, sell our house and make a nice profit, you know, but is this something that you see come up on the clearancejobs.com discussion boards? For sure. I think home ownership comes up in a few different ways. And like you said, you touched on a big one, which, you know, I think the kind of question now is, is the bubble going to burst? So I'm not seeing, you know, some of the issues, but if you look back historically, when we've had recessions before, a big issue was certainly for a lot of people who got underwater with their house. I think there is some speculation now, like, could we have some, you know, repercussions of that? And so then certainly people who a lot of cleared positions are in these super high cost of living areas. So there are some people asking, is it worth buying a home? Should I buy a home? And what should I be concerned about as a security clearance holder or applicant before I sign on the dotted line and end up with this enormous mortgage that I have to pay for? Yeah, well, it's, it's a great question. And I will tell you and our listeners that after the 2008-2009 bubble burst, we were absolutely deluged with cases where people were having security clearances denied or revoked because they were underwater on their home. And I know that's a scary prospect for folks. I mean, you know, some of this is outside of your control, right? You know, we don't really have the ability as, as individuals to put our hand on the lever and, and determine, you know, which way the housing market is going to go. What is in each of our control is how leveraged or over leveraged we are in that investment. And so I think the biggest thing that I always tell people who are asking about this issue is you have to be careful that you are not over leveraging yourself in the house that you're buying or, or thinking about buying. And, you know, that's, I think for a lot of people, common sense advice, irrespective of whether or not you hold a security clearance. But unfortunately, we're seeing, I think, kind of a repeat, albeit maybe a little less extreme of the circumstances that we had in the run-up to the last housing bubble where credit is really easily available, down payments are really low if you want them that way, 
maybe some people are being given loans who ought not to be. And so I think that is feeding into some of this concern that you're, you know, mentioning about the possibility of another bubble burst. So, you know, there's there's not a magic number here and I'm not going to purport to tell anybody how much they can or can't put down on a home, but if you're buying a property and you have a security clearance, I would really be careful about asking questions like can I make this payment if for example, my spouse, you know, loses their job or, or gets downsized? Can I make this payment if we have some unexpected expense? Can I make this payment if, you know, somebody gets sick in the family? Like Those are things to take into consideration. Maybe, you know, you look at buying something that is a little bit below your means just so that you have that cushion in the event that life happens. You're not going to be either out on the street or, you know, so far behind on the mortgage that the bank is trying to, you know, foreclose. It's an interesting point because that we're, you know, there's a lot of, you know, research or the data shows that younger people now are not part of the same home buying craze that a lot of people were. And I think it is because of the market that we're in right now, where hopefully folks are being kind of wise about it. And I don't want to discourage anybody from buying a home because I do think it could can be a good investment, but making sure that it's a wise one for your season of life and based on your, you know, the amount of savings you have, because if you don't have some form of cushion there, it is tough. It is. Yeah. And, you know, I, I will mention also, you know, when I say we were deluged with security clearance denials and revocations last time, there was a real lag in when we saw those cases. So we didn't really start getting a lot of those cases until many years later. And I would say 2014, 2015, 2016 was where we got a lot of cases involving people whose properties had been foreclosed on and they were dealing with a deficiency judgment, which is something that is you know available to lenders in some states where, in other words, they reclaim the property, they sell it at a foreclosure auction, and then they come back to you and say, we disposed of your property, but it was for less than what you owed on the loan. So pay up the difference. And when you can't do that, then it goes to collections. And sometimes they try to pursue it in court. And the government was saying to our clients in those cases, look, we understand that life happens. We understand that the circumstances may have been outside of your control, but did you act reasonably? Did you try to resolve this or did you just walk away and throw up your hands? And it was a mixed bag. Some people could demonstrate that, yes, you know, they did everything possible. They, you know, engaged a realtor and, you know, tried to do a short sale of the property. They tried to, you know, return it to the bank in exchange for a waiver of the deficiency. Like there's all sorts of options that you have if you're in that situation and you need to talk to an attorney who handles real estate law to really understand what those may be depending on your state. But the folks who did that and and acted reasonably under the circumstances were largely fine. It was the folks who sort of ignored the bank or just walked away and, and threw up their hands that ran into problems. And unfortunately, we did see a lot of people in that latter category who wound up losing their clearances as a result. Well, you know, we've touched on buying a house here. We know that's really hard right now. But what if you're just a real baller and that DC paycheck is doing real well for you and you're thinking about buying a second home overseas? I've seen that one come up. I believe you've written about it for us before. And we've gotten that question from current clearance holders considering an investment property abroad, for instance, or even maybe they 
travel to Costa Rica or Spain or somewhere else, fell in love with it, really want to buy a property abroad. What have you seen on that lane? And what are some considerations before somebody considers investing in property overseas? It's a romantic notion, you know, that uh, villa on the Italian coast or that, you know, retirement home in Spain. I, I get it completely. I understand what the draw is. It's can this be leveraged against you somehow by a foreign government or a hostile actor to sort of put the squeeze on you and get them to do your bidding. Part of this is the identity of the country involved. I don't think anybody's going to really suggest that that would be the case with, you know, some of our more friendly uh, allied countries in, you know, Australia or something. I don't really think the government is going to be able to credibly make the case that there's a foreign influence risk there. We do have a lot of folks who are, for example, first generation immigrants and uh, for family reasons or nostalgia or whatever the case may be, they buy or they inherit a property in a country that's a little more dicey. That's uh, more of a problem. And, you know, we always tell folks in those situations, you really, really want to be cautious about proactively doing something like that. If, you know, there's any possibility the country involved could be viewed as problematic. If you inherit something, you want to try to dispose of that as soon as possible, sell it, repatriate the funds to the United States. So there are situations where buying a property overseas or inheriting one is not the end of the world. But as a general rule of thumb, I don't advise it until you're in a position where that clearance isn't as imperative for you anymore. The flip side of that, and something I think is also really important to talk about, is the benefit of buying a property in the United States. And is there a benefit specifically for clearance holders? And actually, there can be, particularly for clearance holders who are potentially dealing with a perception of foreign influence because of family members in another country or because of a property they own in another country. One of the ways we have been very successful in offsetting that concern is saying, yes, they own a vacation home in country X, but they also own a home here or they own two homes here or three homes here. Whatever the value is of the property that they own overseas or the you know relationships that they have overseas is outweighed or at least equal to whatever they have in the United States. And so if you are somebody who has family overseas or other connections overseas, that's actually something that can really help mitigate the concerns because they're going to look at you and say, okay, they have something here tangible that's tying them to the United States. They're not just going to uproot and flee if we're closing in on them, then we, you know, we think they're spying or something. I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot about that. I have seen that come up in cases where they have, you know, listed somebody's attachment to the United States includes financial attachments significantly. So especially if you have possible foreign influence issues with relatives overseas, I think showing that you've actually invested more time, more money, more, more capital into building a life in the United States, that's going to help mitigate that. And I've seen that successfully done too. So that's a great point. Yeah, I think... Like everything, there are pros and cons to homeownership. And, you know, certainly there are lots of other things to consider beyond your security clearance when buying a home. So I would, you know, discourage anybody from getting tunnel vision and investing in a, a large purchase just because they're thinking that it's going to help them offset foreign influence concern or something along those lines. But there are very legitimate and very good reasons why buying a property 
can be helpful for your security clearance, among other things. For sure. On that, anything else on home ownership and your clearance? You know, just like anything, I would tell people, do your due diligence and be careful. It is an investment. It's oftentimes the biggest investment that most people make. And so if you would do research before investing in a stock or a bond, you got to do the same research before you buy that house. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.